like to have us open to our text uh, for this morning. Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. And if you're following along in the Bibles and the pews here, that's on page 832. We're wrapping up a a sermon series we've been in for just the last couple of weeks here uh, called Christmas Contrasts, where we've been contrasting Jesus with some of the other figures, uh, some of the other people in the nativity narrative. Uh, And we've been doing that as a way to understand Jesus himself better. So uh, we started with Jesus and his adoptive father, Joseph. Uh, Then we looked at Jesus and Herod, who was the king of Judea at the time when he was born. Uh, Last week, we looked at Jesus and John the Baptist. Today, we are going to look at Jesus and the most powerful figure in the world at the time that he was alive, Caesar Augustus. And our hope is to understand Jesus a little bit better. And also buckle up, because this might be the nerdiest Christmas sermon you ever have heard. Um, Hope you're ready for a lot of history. This is what Luke, the author of this gospel, writes here in Luke chapter 2. He says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor in Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters, uh, brothers, and friends in Jesus Christ, uh, a few years ago, there was a popular video game that people everywhere seemed to be playing on their phones. Clash of Clans, it was called. Honestly, I never played it, so I could be totally off with what I'm about to say, but it seemed to be a collaborative fighting game of some sort. The way I understand it is that you would recruit people into your clan or join theirs, and then together you would battle with other clans, clashing for uh, supremacy and victory over them. Any of you ever play that game? One person, great, excellent. Okay, there's a few of you. Did I get that more or less right? Is that, is that how it worked? I told you, this is gonna be a nerdy sermon, okay? We're talking about video games already. Well, that's actually similar to what's going on here in our text for this morning, too. That's because there's a brewing conflict here, a simmering confrontation, a clash of sorts that's about to occur between one kingdom, one king, one ruler, and another. The only problem is that one of them doesn't even know that the other one exists. On one side, you've got Gaius Octavius Thorinus. Now, Gaius Octavius uh, Thorinus's father was also named Gaius Octavius, and I think he did, by the way, actually have a nose. And he was a Roman plebe whose family had been slowly but surely working their way up the ranks of Roman society for some time. The elder Octavius continued that trend, successfully winning political elections first as a Roman quasitor in 70 BCE and then as a praetor in 61 BCE. His second election as a praetor came with the command of an army. In ancient Rome, political positions were often tied to the command of an entire army. So you got your own army when you 
one office. It's a good thing we don't do that still anymore today. He used that army to go and put down a slave revolt in Thury, which is a province in the south of Italy. As a reward for his success, he was given the governorship of Macedonia, where he again led his army to victory over the Bessi, who were a Thracian tribe from modern-day Bulgaria. This allowed him to stand for election as consul, Rome's highest and most important political office in 58 BCE. On his way to Rome, though, to stand for that election, he became ill and died, short-circuiting his rapid rise to power. The elder Octavius was married twice. His first marriage was to a woman named Ancaria, with whom he had a daughter, Octavia, in 69 BCE. It's unknown how their marriage ended, but most scholars think that it was due to Ancaria's death and childbirth. Then in 61 BCE, Octavius married his second wife, Adia, uh, who I think she also had a nose at one point. He already had two children with Adia. The first was another daughter, also named Octavia, and then a son, the aforementioned Octavius. So just in case you're keeping track, that means that the elder Octavius had three children, all of whom he named various versions of his own name, Octavia, Octavia, and Octavius. He was like the ancient version of George Foreman, okay? We're off to a good start. You're laughing at the jokes, too. Um, Anyway, after the elder Octavius died, his wife, Adia, remarried. Her new husband, Lucius Martius Philippus, and yes, I practice pronouncing all of these names, wasn't interested in the younger Octavius. He didn't really want him in his family or in his house. So he shipped him off to live with his maternal grandmother, Julia. Now, Julia is an important figure. She eventually became known to history. She became known to history because she came from the ruling Julio-Claudian family, a family that eventually became known to history too. And that family became known to history because of someone else in that family who became known to history. His name was Gaius Julius Caesar, and he was Julia's younger brother. Now, at the time that the younger Octavius was born, Caesar, like Octavius' father, the elder Octavius, was also working his way up the ranks of Roman society. At 37 years old, just for reference, that's a year older than I am right now, not that it's a competition or anything, he already had an impressive resume of political, military, and religious positions that he had served in, and he had his eyes on more. Caesar likely knew little about his great nephew, Octavius, because during Octavius' childhood and teen years, Caesar was in the process of becoming Caesar, as we know him today. Winning battle after battle and election after election, he was doing all he could to consolidate power and control over Roman politics and society. In fact, it probably wasn't until his older sister, Julia, died that he even became aware of his great nephew. That's because at the tender age of 12, Octavius gave the oration, the speech, the remembrance speech at his grandmother Julia's funeral, and Caesar was there, and something about it must have impressed him, because from that time on, Octavius and Caesar's lives became increasingly intertwined. Four years later, at the age of 16, Octavius was elected to the College of Pontiffs. Made up of the highest-ranking priests in Roman religion, the pontiffs served the Pontifex Maximus, Rome's highest priest. Anyone want to guess who that was at the time? It was Caesar. 
This was also when one of Rome's many civil wars was taking place. Fighting against a number of other Roman generals, Caesar was jockeying for power and trying to establish himself as the supreme Roman leader over the entire republic. Still only 16, the young Octavius wanted to join his great uncle in the fight. On his way, though, he was shipwrecked. Undeterred, after washing ashore, Octavius gathered a handful of other companions and hiked to the battlefield. The only problem? He was on the wrong side. They were behind enemy lines. But that didn't deter Octavius. Instead, he led his companions past the enemy camp, across the battlefield, and into Caesar's camp, where he presented himself to his great uncle, ready for battle. Caesar was so impressed by his great nephew's loyalty and daring that he allowed Octavius to share his carriage with him as they traveled about from that time on, which was a huge honor in that culture, in that time. He grew, in fact, he grew so fond of Octavius that after he won the battle and defeated his enemies, he went back to Rome where he drew up a new will naming Octavius as both his adopted son and future heir. Three years later, the young Octavius was in Illyria, modern-day Bosnia and Croatia, studying and undergoing military training when news reached him that his great-uncle, Julius Caesar, had been assassinated. Unaware that Caesar had adopted him, Octavius rushed back to Rome to learn the contents of Caesar's will. Upon learning that Caesar had, in fact, adopted him, Octavius took on his great-uncle's name, proclaiming himself Gaius Julius Caesar II, an heir not only to Caesar's estate, but to his political power as well. The only problem was that Octavius wasn't alone. There were others claiming to succeed Caesar as well. And so just like his father and great-uncle before him, Octavius joined the crowded ranks of Roman generals jockeying for power. He did have a couple things going for him, though, a few legs up on the competition, if you will. First, many of Caesar's soldiers pledged their loyalty to him. As a result, only three months after Caesar's death and at only 19 years of age, Octavius found himself in command of one of the best armies in all of Rome. Second, almost immediately after Caesar's death, there was a movement to recognize him as a god. While it took a year and a half for the Roman Senate to make it official, on January 1, 42 BCE, they formally proclaimed Caesar Divus Julius, the divine Julius, an official god in the Roman pantheon. That allowed Octavius then, as Caesar's son and heir, to proclaim himself Divi Filius, son of the divine, or to put it more simply, son of God. And from that point on, things just continued to go Octavius' way. First, he formed alliances with two of Caesar's other allies, Mark Antony and Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, and together they defeated the other contenders for power. And then when their alliance broke apart, Octavius defeated them too. It took a while, almost 17 years after Caesar's death. But eventually, when the dust settled in 27 BCE, Octavius had become the sole ruler and first official emperor of the Roman Empire. Dubbed Augustus, which means majestic, great, or the illustrious one. By the time he was 36, again, my age, Octavius had gone from Gaius Octavius Thurinus, the son of an ambitious but short-lived plebe, to Imperator Gaius Julius Caesar Augustus, Divi Filius, son of God, ruler of the known world. As N.T. Wright puts it in his commentary on this passage, Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. 
He became sole ruler of the Roman world after a bloody civil war in which he overpowered all rival claimants. The last to be destroyed was the famous Mark Antony who committed suicide not long after his defeat at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. Augustus turned the great Roman Republic into an empire with himself at the head. He proclaimed that he had brought justice and peace to the whole world and declaring his dead adoptive father to be divine, styled himself as son of God. Poets wrote songs about the new era that had begun. Historians told the long story of Rome's rise to greatness, reaching its climax, obviously, with Augustus himself. Augustus, people said, was the savior of the world. He was its king, its lord. Increasingly, in the eastern part of his empire, people worshipped him, too, as a god. But then, Wright says this, Meanwhile, far away, on that same eastern frontier, a boy was born who would, within a generation, also be hailed as son of God whose followers would speak of him as Savior and Lord, and whose arrival, they thought, had brought true justice and peace to the world. You see, 31 years into Octavius's august, majestic, glorious reign, in a far-flung corner of his empire, another ruler was born. And while the world would eventually know his name too, his life and rule would be quite different. And we see that already, even right away, with his birth. This king was born in 4 CE, the son, or so it was thought, of a Jewish carpenter named Joseph and his unwed fiance Mary. And there are a number of things about him, even including his birth, that are interesting or stand out at least for a future king. You see, first, like we just said, he was born to an unwed mother. In other words, he wasn't even, as we might say today, legitimate, a legitimate child or a legitimate heir. Even if his adoptive father, Joseph, had been someone of significance and standing, which as a first century carpenter, he wasn't. But even if he had been, this child wouldn't have been able to inherit his estate. Other children born after Mary and Joseph were married would have been able to, but not this one. According to the culture he was born into, this child was a nobody, a nothing, someone destined to grow up and be no one of any significance at all. Second, he was born far from home. That's because as we read here in this text, in obedience to a degree from none other than Augustus himself, this child's parents, Joseph and Mary, had had to travel late in her pregnancy far south of their hometown in Nazareth to the Jerusalem suburb of Bethlehem. Most rulers and people of prestige are born in the comfort of their own homes to great pomp and circumstance, but not this one. He was born on the move, in transit, according to the directive of an emperor, far from the comfort and familiarity of his own community. And he was also born into poverty, or at least the lower class. That's because, as the text says, after he was born, his mother Mary wrapped him in claws. That's code for this family didn't have very much because that's what peasants did. That's how they swaddled their babies at the time. They wrapped their children tightly in strips of cloth in order to bind them up and keep them safe because they had to carry them with them as they worked and scraped by, eking out a meager day-to-day -day existence. 
And this child's cradle wasn't much to write home about either. That's because, like the text says, Mary placed him in a manger. And we all know from years of tradition what a manger is, right? It's an animal feed trough, an animal utensil, a glorified dog bowl, if you will. And yet that's where this child, this king, was laid. And there's more we could say, too. I think you get the point. Even in his birth, this child, this ruler, this king was destined to be a very, very different kind of king. Again, as N.T. Wright puts it in his commentary, the point Luke is making is clear. The birth of this little boy is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God in all its apparent weakness, insignificance, and vulnerability and the kingdoms of the world. Uh, I was actually reading something this morning about that. Uh, Recently, for my uh, devotions, I've been reading the radio addresses of Father Alexander Shmeman, who was a Russian Orthodox priest and theologian. And he used to record short, pithy reflections on the Christian faith uh, in New York City and then broadcast them over the Iron Curtain into the Soviet Union during the 1950s uh, through the 1980s. He actually did that for 30 years, from 1953 until his death in 1983. And the one I was reading this morning, it's kind of funny how the Holy Spirit does this, right? Right? because I wasn't planning on including any of this, just seemed to fit so perfectly with what we're talking about this morning. It's a little long, but I think it's worth it. Shmeman writes, Every people, every land, has two histories. One is an external history woven entirely of wars and battles, of political successes and tragedies, of victories and defeats. Here the key words are power, glory, national pride, the welfare of the nation. Sound familiar? He could be describing our own country today. In this history, permeated with blood and suffering, power, glory, and welfare always occur at the expense of others and are always a victory of the powerful over the weak, of the proud over the humble. Empires are built, but always on war and subjugation. And for its power and glory to exist, someone must always tremble in fear. But then Shmeman writes this, but thanks be to God, each country and nation also has another history. Our nation as well, he's speaking of Russia, the Soviet Union here, but it could apply to any country. People are trying to quell it, to make it appear non-existent, but this is impossible, for it always penetrates through the bloody and horrible fabric of external history. And its authors, of course, are the saints, the people who, from the point of view of external history, appear useless, if not harmful, fools and idiots, escaping life into some kind of dream. But with the passage of time, the powerful disappear, and their glory decays. Where are these ancient empires that once terrified the universe? Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Rome. Throughout the world we can see the ruins of Roman columns covered in grass, which so eloquently witnesses to the poverty and transience of every earthly power, of every earthly glory. But the poor and homeless teacher crucified by the all-powerful Roman Empire, reigns to this day in the hearts of millions of people. When everything external in the past has rusted over, has rotted and disintegrated, what remains is pure gold over which the ages and eras are powerless. 
So it is that behind this external history, an inner history is revealed in all its changeless beauty and endurance, a history of spirit, faith, and love. If our country is to have a future, again, he's speaking of Russia, but it could be true of any country. If there is any hope, then this future and hope lie not in power and might, but only here, in this spirit, in this faith, and in this love. You see, Octavius, Caesar Augustus, never heard of this ruler who had been born in Bethlehem. He wasn't aware of him. He didn't know about his birth. He didn't know about his life. And given how humble it was, he probably wouldn't have even cared if he did. And yet, and this is nothing short of astonishing if you really sit down and think about it, within a century, Augustus's successors would be so threatened by this humble, nobody, nothing king that they would do, be doing all they possibly could to extinguish his followers. Two centuries after that, one of Augustus's own successors would actually become one of this king's followers. And then in the centuries after that, this empire that Augustus had built and proclaimed himself majesty of would turn from proclaiming his name, his glory, and his divinity to instead spreading, proclaiming, and promoting this king, his glory, and his divinity all over the world. And while Augustus's emperor, empire, like Schmemann said, would indeed eventually fade, this king and his empire, his glory, have not. And it all started here in a town called Bethlehem, where a pair of unwed peasants welcomed their illegitimate child named Jesus into the world. That's where this clash of kingdoms began. And it continues still today. You see, Augustus and many before him and many after him too, it's not like this has gone away, have long claimed to be Lord They've claimed to be king. Like Augustus, some have even claimed to be son of God, savior and ruler of the world. In fact, some still claim those very same things or things like them today. And yet the fact is that this child, Jesus, is the only true Lord, the only true king, and the only true son of God. And there is no one else in all of history or creation who can compare to him. Unlike the others, he came in humility, poverty, and the mundaneness of this world. He lived among us, taught us, and pointed us back to his father, God. And then in an act of sacrifice and grace, he suffered for us, bled for us and died to take away our sins. Three days later, he rose to new life so that we could have new life too. And now he is seated at the right hand of God, his Father, ruling over all of creation. Someday, he will come again. And when he does, he will bring to completion all his work of creation and new creation. In that day, the clash of kingdoms, which has been going on for so long, will end. And in its place, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and he alone. 
As Christians, we call all of that, that whole story, the gospel. It's the good news, the good news of all creation, the good news of salvation, the good news that began on Christmas so long ago. So Merry Christmas, my friends. Our Savior is born, the true King has come, and he will reign forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, this world has seen many kings, many would-be lords, even some who from time to time claim to be son of God or divine. But Lord, we know the one who alone is able to hold those titles. King of all creation, Lord and God, Son of God, our ruler and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending him among us 2,000 years ago. We celebrate his coming with joy and we look forward to his coming again with hope and anticipation. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. I'm gonna invite the worship team up at this time. And I'm also gonna invite any kids who would like to come forward uh, to come and gather with me around the candles up here. So any kids who want to, you can come forward at this time too. And praise team, we'll just need to make a little space uh, for them as well. You can gather around on both sides here, wherever you fit. Sort of ran out of real estate up here, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. Corbin goes, yeah. So let me ask you, what are some ways that we keep track of time? What are some things that we use to, to, to mark time or keep track of time? A clock. A clock, exactly, what else? Watch. A watch, that's right. A calendar, exactly. A sundial. A sundial, do you use one of those? No, yeah. <laughs> But you're onto something because people used to just use the sun itself as it went across the sky, right? Can you think of anything else? Roman numerals. Roman numerals, exactly. So those are all examples of ways we keep time. Some of those are ways that we keep time in our day-to-day lives and just each and every day, right? So minutes, hours, seconds, so clocks, like we mentioned, watches. A lot of people use phones these days, too. I was kind of surprised none of you mentioned that as the first one. I was kind of expecting that. But then you also mentioned uh, calendars, right? That keeps track of days and months and years. And so there's all these different ways that we track time. Can I ask you, have any of you been keeping track of time the last month or so? as we make our way towards Christmas? Have any of you done anything to keep track of how many days until Christmas? A few of you. What have you used? What have you done? Yeah. A, a string? A chain. I'm sorry. I didn't. A chain. Oh, so like one of those, yeah, like where you have like red and yellow paper and you pull off different links as you go. What else? Yeah. Advent calendar. An advent calendar? What was in your advent calendar? Wooden ornaments. Did anyone else use any other advent calendars? My favorite ones are the ones with chocolate in them. Yeah. Yeah. So there's different ways that we keep track of the time leading us towards Christmas. That's actually what these candles do. 
Have you noticed that each week that we've worshipped during the season of Advent, we've lit one of these candles? They lead us closer and closer towards Christmas. It's a way of keeping time, a way of helping us look forward to and anticipate Christmas. And we have the privilege now, this morning, of lighting this final candle. Does anyone know what this final candle is called? Yeah. The G- well, yes, Jesus is called the Christ candle. Exactly. It's the same thing, though. It's the Jesus candle. Because we light this candle to remind us that Jesus has come, the light of the world. And so, We're going to do that all together now. So, like we just talked about, we light this candle as a sign of the coming light of Christ. The prophet Isaiah writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Let us walk in the light of the Lord, and let us indeed walk in the light of Jesus Christ. You all can make your way back to your seats.